0: Welcome, folks, to another episode of That Anita Live, emotional healing to help you create a happier life. I'm Anita, your host, and this week, we're discussing earning the impossible. As a pregnant teen, my guest today very quickly fell on hard times, living at times without heat and running water. Though she barely had a roof over her head, what she did have was the desire to achieve. In her fight to improve her life, she managed to get the one thing that has proven to successfully enhance and upgrade any situation you may find yourself in. She managed to get a college education, earning not just her bachelor's degree, but also her doctorate degree from Yale University. Welcome to the show, Dr. Deborah Mark. Hey, Dr. Deb. Hi, (laughs) thank you. How
1: are you? I'm great, thank you. How is your weekend going so far? It's going very well, thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. No,
0: thank you for coming. Of course. So now, let's go back to you first finding out that you were pregnant as a teen. Okay. What was going through your head and your heart at that time?
1: So I guess we have to back up just a little bit, even maybe further, um, because I left home when I was pretty young, Um, so I was 16, and I think you know, I have to say about my parents that they're just, they're incredible people. Mm-hmm. They, um, they've influenced me so much. They're examples of the sort of people who resist the position that the world has given them Um, so my mother you know in her 40s without a degree without a driver's license without any friends or family she goes back to school gets her college degree now she's a teacher in a school where kids walk through the metal detector and they don't go to any other class except miss wolf's english class yes at at 40 40. she changed her entire life and she (laughs) lost like 80 pounds like she just was fabulous right Um, my father similarly he was a person who definitely was on his grind you know when i was (laughs) when i was born he worked at the Fulton Fish Market, my mother used to make him, you know, strip down to his drawers on the uh, front stoop before he came Leave, right. <laughs> Leave the smell outside! the outside! And he went from that to being, you know, a private investigator, Al Pacino's bodyguard. You know, he was a. Um, he was a small business owner, all kinds of things. And so they're these incredible people who just loom large in my um, own f- self-fashioning and my, and my own sense yeah. of who I am. Um, that being said, I had a difficult relationship with them when I was younger. And um, I can see
0: why, because <laughs> with all of the independence and <laughs> opinion they had, OK, you just naturally took <laughs> all of that on. Right. And
1: I mean, how could you not have a strange relationship <laughs> with them? So I was a willful child. <laughs> and, um, you know, when I was 16, I was. Um, I was sexually assaulted by a person that I knew my entire life, and um, the way that it was handled in my family um, at the time, I felt um, I felt like I needed to leave the home, um, and so informally I kind of couch surfed a little bit, and then you know by the time I was seventeen, I was formally living on my own in, in my own apartment with the, my future son's father. Mm-hmm. So it was sort of us against the world at that time. You know, um, I you know I started college and. Uh, the month before I started college. Um, now, did mm-hmm. you find college or did college find you? Because you oh, went to City College question. of New York. I right? did. And City College of New York was recently ranked number two in the nation for upward mobility for its students. And so, you know, when we talk about why people are able to change their lives, mm-hmm. it's really not a story of individual kind of up by your bootstraps narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody gets where they are on their own. Right. And so it's really about investing in those institutions that make those kinds of transformations possible. Fortunately for me, um, in high school I tested. I guess you know Stuyvesant High School it was the magnet school for um, Mm -hmm. science and mathematics Mm -hmm. and because I was there there was this new scholarship just for 10 kids Um, whoever wanted to go to City College gets a free ride $10,000 a year Um, they get a they get a, a laptop computer, they get a, a pass to get into uh, So the $10,000 was a stipend, not towards a tuition. A stipend on top of that, yeah. So free okay, tuition, okay. stipend, and then because I was well below the poverty line, I was also a full, full Pell Grant student, um, and so I had that over on top. Um, and. There were a number of public and private actors who, um, who invested in my education, and without those things, I certainly wouldn't have been able to get through a semester, never mind so four years. So how did you find out that you actually tested and were approved for this program? This program. This program was totally new. The announcement was made over the loudspeaker, and, you know, Stuyvesant is kind of like TJ, like everybody. They had a, um, ac- an acronym in Stuyvesant. Shh. Stuyvesant. Harvard heaven, (laughs) so the idea was you're on your way to the Ivy League, um, and that wasn't as important to me. What was important to me was getting um, the kind of education that allowed me to answer pressing questions I've always had about my world and my place within that world, Um, and also, of course, What was important was me being able to actually get through the education in a very systematic um, and concrete material way. Mm -hmm. And so um, when I heard about this scholarship, I was first in line um, in the office of the guidance counselor finding out more. The 10 of us who were accepted, it was an incredible opportunity not only to go to a world class institution that has such a fascinating history in this country uh-huh. of allowing immigrants and folks who are excluded from prestigious universities to have a chance mm-hmm. in this life. But it also um, was a place where because these private actors had invested in my education, they were interested in hearing my story and they were interested in hearing how I was doing. And so um, me, this kind of bridge and tunnel Queens girl who, mm-hmm. um, you know, would pass by these penthouses that loomed uh, in the distance on my way to school. Like I was invited up to these penthouses for these fundraisers, right? These men would ask me stand up tell my story, um, talk about what it was that I was receiving, um, what it was that I was able to do as a result, mm-hmm. and what my goals were. Um, very few of us at 18 are asked, number one, um, ask that question. Right. What right. is it that you're trying to do, right? So even in just crafting that narrative and telling that story, it helped me have a better sense of who I was and who I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And then the fact that people with power cared to listen to that do story. You, do
0: you remember the tidbits of that story? what you would tell them that's
1: fascinating yes um, yes I do (laughs) I used to, it's very similar to what I'm telling you today, which is that, you know, no one in my family had done a PhD before. No one on my block had considered going to graduate school Mm -hmm. before. Um, I had never met a professor. (laughs) And so by the time I got to college, because my first semester English professor, Mary Saladay, noticed that I was, I was very nerdy about literature. (laughs) I would email her long after class was over Mm -hmm. with footnoted (laughs) emails about (laughs) Toni Morrison. And, you know, she said, I've I think think that you belong in academia. And it was a life of the mind, it was a life that I hadn't considered for myself. And so I would talk about the ways in which this scholarship and this institution um, made possible a vision of myself that I wouldn't have had before. So you're
2: in
0: City College, and you're living where? So at that time- Because City uh, College
1: doesn't have dorms, correct? Oh no, now it does, now it does. (laughs) So (laughs) they're coming up in the world. But back then I was, yeah, I was commuting to school, I was commuting Mm, three subways and one bus (laughs) um so it's one way oh yes one way so so let me i can walk you through my day if you want so yes i was living in a kind of an illegal converted space and i i do want to talk to you about how i found housing because housing is such a pressing issue right now Mm -hmm. and like my experience i think reflects a, a broader kind of experience that is much more common today um but in any case i was living in this um kind of converted like two-room space in somebody's house um, and because the the landlord was in the process of renovating this home um, he would regularly turn off the water and you know I was uh, bottle feeding my son and so that was a very like doing that without much notice um, yes. put me in an interesting position um, in terms of making sure my son was fed and, and bathed um, certainly heat was an issue and uh, how do you do without heat in New York um uh, you, you wear a coat today. <laughs> and you cuddle your child. <laughs> okay, yes, yeah, yeah, definitely. And so so I would wake up you know, 5:36 in the morning, get my son ready, and I put all my, my 18 credits on two days a week because there was this lovely woman in my mother's neighborhood, which was about a half hour bus ride away. Um, there was a lovely woman named Marguerite who would watch kids for $50 a day. Um, so if I could put it on fewer days, I would save money mm. and so I traveled the half hour with the diaper bag in my backpack and my baby and all that I drop him off with all his bottles prepared and um, and she had a couple of other kids and a dog that she was watching and she would you know sit him down and he they didn't do much during the day but she was a very loving woman and um, he would stay there till nine ten o'clock at night because I had all my classes you know mm-hmm. it would take me about two hours to go from you know the bayside it's like where she lived it's like last stop on the bus to the first stop on the bus right and then you get on the 7 train last stop on the 7 train to so the first stop on the 7 train 42nd street then you transfer up the 2 and then at once s- at 96th street How you transfer to the 1 do you want <laughs> <it>? yes <How> and <laughs>
2: so then i'd make it up there you know
1: it. i'd make it up there and um once i was there i was like any other student there um i was there to learn and i was there uh there were so many other young people and working adults with fascinating stories who had less investment made in their lives Mm -hmm. than I did in mine. So for example, one of my closest friends at school was an undocumented immigrant, and so she had to pay her full tuition. She was not qualified for any Pell Grant. She wasn't qualified for any private assistance anyway. Full time working, full time taking care of her elders at home, going to school all day, and it was a struggle. She certainly didn't make it out in four years the way that I did because I had the fortune of having people take interest mm-hmm. in my in my experience.
0: You said once that going to City College opened you up to possibilities. Yes. What did
1: that mean? Yeah, I think a big part of that is, I think a big part of that is uh, seeing seeing what I'm capable of um, understanding what it is that I'm capable of a lot of this comes down to your voice you know Um, finding your voice but also finding out that you have not just permission but authority mm-hmm. to use your voice in public. Um, I I certainly was always like that nerdy kid, right? And so I felt of in the course, classroom. Of course, sending footnotes to the teacher. <laughs> yes, <at their> <laughs> it's pretty clear. <laughs> and so I, you know, I always was uh, very comfortable in the classroom space, um, but outside of the classroom, I felt very much as though. I needed to know every single thing on a particular topic before I could speak up about it, um, even if it was an issue I cared very much about. And you know, when I saw injustice in the world, or when I saw something going on in my home or in my personal relationships, mm-hmm. um, I felt as though I felt as though my voice was neither welcome nor effective. And I think what I was able to see at City College, not only from my classes and my professors, but also um, from my peers, uh, was that it's my responsibility to use my voice um, to make change in the world. And I think, um, I think it's about the, the power of the individuals whom I admired um, telling me that and, and granting me that permission and that example. So
0: tell me about a time or a moment when you're in this makeshift basement apartment, <laughs> if I can call his an apartment. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and you felt like you were not going to make it.
1: Yeah, I can definitely come up with a couple of examples like that. Um, so I, you know, I didn't have a car, I didn't drive. Um, and so, you know, it would be it would be nine o'clock 930. I'm coming home off this bus, you know, how mass transit is even in a place like New York. And there's no groceries in the house because, you know, my son's father and I, we had a pretty rough relationship and maybe he didn't come home that day or maybe he refused to do the grocery Mm -hmm. shopping. And so now I know that the grocery store is a mile and a half away and I have an infant and it's cold outside and there's nothing to eat. And it's probably three feet of snow Mm -hmm. outside. (laughs) Sometimes sometimes there is, (laughs) right. And I can certainly remember um, pushing that red cart that I had, you know, those red carts Mm -hmm. for the groceries. finding a way to kind of balance his car seat on this red cart getting him a mile and a half um, down the road getting the groceries I needed pushing it all the way back and just carrying everything little by little um, down these stairs uh, and just to be honest with you at the time um, I was raised an atheist, but I was—I um, had this born-again experience when I was 16, and um, what was important to me in those low moments was being thankful, was praising. Um, at that time, uh, that meant praising God. So mm-hmm. just for the air in my lungs just for the fact that I could walk down these stairs, just for the fact that I'm holding a healthy child in my hands um, as I as I walk through this uh, cold apartment. <laughs> um, that act of being thankful was very important in giving me perspective uh, that this too shall pass and that, um, that in this low moment, there's still so much for me um, to be grateful for.
0: Uh and we'll be right back to hear more about how she went from City College of New York to Yale.
2: Welcome to That Anita Live TV on YouTube. Here at That Anita Live, I share episodes about emotional healing to help you create a happier life. How do I do that? Through awareness, education, and most importantly, you, the community. By sharing tips and techniques from real people with real stories of overcoming trauma and abuse to live relentless lives. Hanging out with me, you'll laugh, you'll learn, but most importantly, you'll heal. Never miss a moment subscribe to that Anita lives YouTube channel today subscribe via that forward slash YouTube and we're
0: back to hear more of this extraordinary story from dr. Deb Marsh how did
1: you get from City College to Yale Um, Well, I guess uh, there are a couple different really important factors there. Um, The first being the mentorship I received at City College. So um, having Mary Saladay, but also having a a program called the City College Fund, Mm -hmm. which uh, along with the Mellon Fellowship was a program that was designed to identify folks from underrepresented groups who are considering a career in academia, just to make sure that when we get to college, the people who are teaching our students reflect the student body themselves. And so this was a program uh, that was, you know, constructed around identifying working class students and women and folks of color um, and first-generation Americans who are interested in pursuing a PhD who otherwise wouldn't have considered it so fortunately I got scooped up within this program and I became part of this band of of nerds. meet every month and um, you know do research and and find out about opportunities and support one another um, in our applications for fellowships and that's the second piece is that because I had this guidance I was able to apply for something called the Jacob K Javits fellowship Mm -hmm. which supports it's a very similar story to my undergrad it supports uh, six years of study in the humanities for a PhD it's a very generous full ride plus thirty thousand dollar stipends and then Yale University offered um, health insurance as well and so you know i couldn't say no to <laughs> a situation like that i was deciding between cornell and yale finally mm-hmm. when all the applications rolled in um, and cornell offered free child care but when i looked around at the community in which cornell was located i realized that i'd really be isolated from my family and my support network mm-hmm. and um i've found when you're trying to Mm, become a fuller better version of yourself <laughs> you want family around <laughs> at least as long as you have the right kind of family <laughs> and so I knew you know Yale was about an hour and a half away from my home and it was important for me to to have that connection so so when did the relationship
0: between you and your parents begin to turn around and become the birth of my son
1: yeah okay. so my older son his name is Jadis and um a child brings a uh, so much new possibility into the world. Yeah, because Mama's sitting back thinking, that she don't know what she's doing out there with my my grandchild. (laughs) That's right, that's right. (laughs) So a big part of that is absolutely my mother wanted to make sure that this her only grandchild this beautiful young baby is um, having every opportunity that he deserves in life and regardless of the difficulties we have mm-hmm. between one another there's something someone far more important now and so it puts everything in perspective and i think the other thing a baby offers a family is a second chance mm-hmm. um, a chance to do things right a chance to learn from our mistakes mm-hmm. uh, and this promise for the future and so my son brought a lot of beauty um, back into my family, which was just and a drew wonderful And drew everybody together, you. that's right. In your education, when you made a vocation choice, why did you choose teaching? Uh, teachers changed my life. Um, there's no question to me. So many people in my family are, are teachers. Because you're a third generation teacher. That's right, yeah. So I was wondering that's if that right. had a play in yes. you choosing to become a teacher. Yes. For a long time, I resisted that. uh, I guess I would call it a calling at this point. (laughs) (laughs) We may as well. Um, I I resisted that. My grandfather was an English teacher in uh, New York City Public Schools. My mother is an English teacher in New York City Public Schools. My uncle, my cousin, so many, my aunt. And I respect the work that they do so much, but I also saw that the profession was changing and that teachers have less power over their classrooms, um, more and more so, uh, I think each day with with each political kind of onslaught. And so, um, you know, and I thought as well, I want to be a professor right (laughs) (laughs) I want to get my PhD and I want to research and publish and it's very important to me to be able to impact a field and all of that is of course crucial work um, crucial intellectual work but what I found when I was at Yale and I was doing my research and presenting at conferences and teaching undergraduates is that Um, there's an element of preaching to the choir, right? Um, You can certainly do things in a college classroom that you can't do in a high school classroom. But at the same time, everyone I was talking to, um, whether it be my colleagues or my students, they already had fully formed their habits of mind, the ways in which they engaged the world and understood texts. Whereas when I, um, uh, it was, not purposeful, but I took a, a position in my last year of graduate school um, as a long-term substitute English teacher at uh, Robinson Secondary School, a public school. And when I began working with these high school students, I saw that I was working with future engineers and doctors and food service workers and mothers and fathers and people who might not pursue an English degree or a degree in African American studies that I could intru- uh, that I could introduce to uh, a new way of looking at the world, a new set of questions, a new way of understanding their place in relation to others. And that really attracted me so as a teacher because you just mentioned
0: teachers are losing their power in the classroom or they have just completely already lost mm-hmm. their power
1: in the classroom yes. what is teacher autonomy yeah so it's really important to me as I think about as I think about what it means to teach at its root right what it means is that is that you're developing a relationship with a student that allows that student to become his or her fuller a uh, better, more beautiful self, like at its heart, right? That's what it is, is a relationship between two people. Um, teachers are on the front lines in the classroom of helping students negotiate their relationship to academic fields, as well as to one another, as well as their position in the world. What that means, in my view, is that teachers, as both the subject matter experts and the people who know their students best, um, that teachers need to be invested with the power to make those decisions in the classroom about what and how their students learn. Um, Unfortunately, in choosing textbooks, choosing textbooks, setting the curriculum, setting the pacing, like think about that, you know, I, Um, I can give an example. Recently, uh, I had a student who was in one of my AP language classes, right? I teach at a small um, private high school right now called Loudon School for the Gifted. Mm -hmm. Um, And this student, um, brilliant, you know, incisive, inquisitive, anxious, so anxious. And we're in the middle of this unit on rhetorical analysis Mm -hmm. and, you know, like in... In the other context in which I've taught AP um, literature and language there's a very strict sense of pacing all the teachers must be in lockstep because we're being evaluated based on a common assessment that's set from above that we all need to um, comply with um, and that's one of the measures by which uh, it's decided how well we're doing mm-hmm. um, but this student she needed She needed me when we had this side conversation and I realized both her passion um, for poetry and her anxiety around some of the work that we were doing in the class. Um, She needed us to slow down a little bit, right? (laughs) She needed us to take a break. She needed me to acknowledge both in my instructional design and in my interactions with her, that she was a human being who was was experiencing a thing right now that I could help guide her through. And so that ability to pace my lessons, to decide how quickly I'm going to teach and then assess a particular skill based on what I'm seeing in the students, where Mm -hmm. they are. that kind of power, it's ultimately about my ability to treat students as human beings rather than as cogs in a machine. And if I can't do that as a teacher, if, I'm, if I am um, being evaluated precisely on my ability to ignore their humanity, um, then teaching loses its meaning. It loses its power. It's really ultimately not about protecting human dignity or allowing us to flourish.
0: Now in the current political climate, there have been laws changed and where some of the power in education is returning back to the states. Mm-hmm. What would you say to the critic of that change that says teachers mistreat students or teachers use their power not for good and some students
1: get treated better than others? So I'd say a couple of things there. One, this, um, this question between the federal and state and then local control of schools is one fraught with history. And there's a very good reason why um, the federal government has a, a, an incentive structure that um, has states complying with its demands and that reason is that poor students and students from underrepresented communities were getting left behind, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And we Mm -hmm. can't ignore that history when we (laughs) begin to advocate (laughs) for teacher autonomy. Um, And I would argue shifting the power away from the federal government toward the states doesn't rectify that problem in any way, nor does it when you shift the power from the states to the teacher, if those teachers reflect the same ideology that produced that marginalization and oppression in the first place. all of that being said, I think the question for me is not shifting power away from the federal government toward the states. It's about creating in schools as well as in, quite frankly, as far as my politics goes, all workplaces, creating a far more democratic organization um, within the workplace so that the folks who do the work have a say about how their job gets done, um, both for efficiency's sake, because they're the ones doing the job and they understand how it needs to get done. See,
0: what I see now is that nerd that did all of that research. <laughs> 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 it is, it, it, out. It, and, and the more you speak the more passionate yes, you become about it so right. it's like she
1: has spent some years studying listening. this and understanding my husband knows not to ask me certain questions because i won't <laughs> stop for a good 30 minutes <laughs> the relationship between the right. federal and the state and the local how, how do schools go about making that change That's a great question. I was just asking a a journalist from from NPR exactly this question because um, she had gone across the country, she was based out of Texas before, um, and she had researched exactly this question. I asked like, are there examples of local districts that do this well? And the answer came that it's not districts but schools, that principals have a great deal of autonomy and they decide how much power teachers have or don't have, not over the curriculum, which is really set at the local level by the district, but over the school culture. Um, over the ways in which students are treated informally um, over what happens in non-classroom spaces um, over yeah these issues of culture and social organization and um I think that is one of the answers, mm-hmm. is um, is training principals to trust teachers and mm-hmm. to show them what that would look like. Um, and also elevating those examples of school administrators who do this, who do this well. Um, gifted. How does a student mm-hmm. get identified as yes. being gifted? This is a fraught question, <laughs> <laughs> this is a fraught question. So. Uh, our I can I, there are a couple of different approaches. I can describe the one at my school. But the couple of different approaches are in, in essence, this question of is the nature of being gifted? Is it fixed? Is it like you took a test in second grade, then at the Cogat in Fairfax County, right, you took this test, and boom, you got 99%, you got 98%, you're gifted, and you're gifted forever. You're always going to receive those services. So right? doesn't mean is one way of that it's in it. one subject or another, mm-hmm. or? So the way that um, I work in Loudoun County, and I had worked in Fairfax County before, okay. um, the, the approach in public school is uh, that they give these aptitude tests, the NAT and the COGAT. Um, and they identify kind of generalized intellectual aptitude across um, mathematics, uh, spatial reasoning, and then mm. verbal reasoning. Um, and so that fixed attitude is one um, there are some critics and my school would be one of those were I, I, I guess I should say I am one of those critics um, who <laughs> not necessarily my school who um, view giftedness as a far more fluid category mm-hmm. um, wherein you know simply students have evolving Um, and developing needs over the course of their academic career and it's our job as educators to identify those needs and try our very best to meet them that's true for special education students that's true for gifted students Um, and so giftedness for me uh, when it's a useful label uh, that label simply means that the standard curriculum is not meeting the students needs um, and that we, administrators, teachers, parents, student, work together to figure out an individualized plan to meet those stu- that student's needs um, Now,
0: do you get to do or that acceleration. at Loudon School for
1: the Gifted? Yes, yeah, so we do both uh, enrichment and acceleration at Loudon School for the Gifted. So that means sometimes curriculum compacting. It means, like, you know this already. You know, we've tested you, or we've informally evaluated you. You can skip this unit, right? You can skip this class. You're a sixth grader, but you're going to be in my AP literature class this year because you are ready for college content. But you know what? your math you're not going to take 12th grade math you're going to take fourth grade (laughs) math maybe because that's where you are at that place and so um, the size of the school uh, as well as the, you know, the ways in which teachers um, are able to identify and act on what they see, um, both of those factors allow us to really individualize the educational plan and make sure that giftedness is not so much describing the student as it is the kind of education they're receiving. Oh, okay, they should be getting okay. a gifted education, an advanced mm-hmm. academic education. And that's what they get at Loudoun School of the That's what they get. I'm
0: sure that's what they get having Dr. <laughs> Deb teach them
1: English.
0: <laughs> I certainly hope so. <laughs> sharing your life story to inspire someone else is very noble dr deb is proof nothing is impossible if there's something noble you'd like to do a passion you have or a dream you'd like to realize there has been no other time in history to get up and do something about it information is available everywhere but you have to put in the effort to find it and then to put that information to good use success is not delivered it has to be achieved. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Deb, visit Loudenschool.org. Make the commitment to start your journey to live your dream today. I'm Anita, your host. Be sure to check out that anitalive.com for where and when to see our next episode. <laughs>